again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit actually applies Christ to them at the proper time. Okay, so we'll look at these verses here. From all eternity, God decreed to justify all the elect. And I will ask if we have someone to read Galatians 3, verse 8. Do we have someone for that? Jeremy? 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Tim? And then 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. Who's got that? Howard. All right, go ahead, Jeremy. Galatians 3, verse 8. Okay, thank you. And that's actually going to tie in with uh, the message this morning. But clearly, the promise given to Abraham is intended for Gentiles as well. It's included for all those who will come in to the kingdom of God by faith. And God has decreed this from eternity past. This wasn't a late addition when things weren't working out with Israel the way God had hoped that he then kind of called an audible and said, all right, we'll bring in the Gentiles. This was always the plan. This was the plan that was promised to Abram is that the kingdom would grow outside the bounds of national Israel as well and include people like us. Okay, 1 Peter 1 verse 2. All right, Tim, we talked about foreknowledge last time. I'll put you on the spot. How does God have foreknowledge? Right. Yes, very important. Did everyone hear, Tim? Okay, God's foreknowledge is not learned. It's not learned. It's authored by God. Very important distinction. And then, uh, Howard, 1 Timothy 2, verse 6. Okay. So again, this includes all, not as in, this is not teaching that every last person is saved, but the all includes all people, as in everyone... uh, regardless of race or gender or ethnicity or social status, Christ died for all without distinction so that all types of people can be saved, Jew or Greek. And so I'll stop there. Is there discussion, is there discussion on any of this? This concept of Gentile inclusion. For us it seems so obvious, doesn't it? We're on this side of the cross. It seems very obvious to us. But can, you, can we sympathize a little bit with the Jewish people and the early Christians that were trying to figure this out? That this would have seemed odd? That Samaritans and Canaanites are allowed in? I think that would have been a real challenge. That would have really upset their paradigm quite a bit that Jesus is going to these far regions and including outsiders in his people. 
Yep. Now start being friendly with your neighbors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did everyone hear Howard's point? Howard was just mentioning rightly what would have made this especially tough is that Israel was surrounded by her enemies. Right? And so you take kind of a bunker mentality when you're surrounded by your enemies and now the game plan moves and advances and now you have to start being friendly with these outsider nations because they're also part of the same people you are, that would be, that would be tough. And I think we sometimes struggle with that today. So I'm curious, if we're making application of that truth that Howard just mentioned for us today as Christians, what might that look like? What kind of traditions or paradigms might we have to overcome ourselves as God grows his kingdom? Dave. Yeah, and that's something we don't often think about, right? We assume based on ethnicity what someone's religion might be, right? They're Arabian, well, they must be a Muslim. Well, are there Christians there, right? Have there sometimes in history been lots of Syrian Christians? Yes. Christianity has been the majority religion in Syria at times, right? It's been the majority religion in Japan, right? Uh, I was reading an interesting account of how... um, even what we assume for Christianity arriving on this continent, there seems to be credible evidence both in B.C. and on the West Coast in the United States as well as in the Carolinas that Christianity was here in the 6th century. There's cave paintings regarding um, Christmas from the 600s in the United States. Somebody, and people assume it was Irish Christians, Celts came here to evangelize uh, North Americans in the 6th century. Right? We don't, but we don't think that way. Right? There was Christian Indians when the pilgrims showed up. Well, how, right? but, but, and I shouldn't say Indians, sorry. First Nations. <laughs> there were Christian Indians too in India. But, uh, but yeah, so I think even for us today what you're saying is we still struggle with the multi-ethnic church. That concept, Right? Yeah, that was great. Dave shared a quote with me yesterday. Do you, 
you've sounded a little fakilt, but uh, yeah. I don't know if you can say it loud enough to share with everyone. It's really good. Okay. Or I can read it too if I've got the microphone, if your voice is struggling. I get lots of information from Dave. No, it's good. Yeah. Most of it's not suitable to share with the church. <laughs> Yeah. Did everyone hear that? No? Okay. God wants one religion and many nations. The devil wants one nation and many religions. And isn't that a pithy little truth, right? What do the pagans want desperately is world peace, world harmony. One, you know, everything is one. Um, but, of course, if there's idolatry baked into that, there will never be oneness because you cannot, multiculturalism cannot work in the long run if by multiculturalism we mean everyone keeps their pagan religions. It, it cannot work. There's no unity if you start at different places. You're going different places. So, of course, the enemy wants superficial unity as long as we're all tribal on the inside. God wants to make one, one church out of many nations which is true unity, okay? So India can keep being India and enjoy their food and their customs and their language and be closer <laughs> to a Christian Frenchman, right? Or a Christian American or a Christian Canadian than they can through some false religion. Yeah, so Don just shared, it's interesting, what, what was Abraham doing to be chosen by God? Absolutely nothing. Sheer grace. And he was a pagan. He was a pagan. Right? And it doesn't take many generations for his grandsons to assume that there's something pretty hot. Right? And we all do that. We all do that. Let's keep going. And in the fullness of time, Christ died for their sins and rose again for their justification. And who wants to take Romans 4, verse 25? Ron. Okay, very good. And that should be a familiar verse. But the basis, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your background, whatever your age, whatever time you're alive, the basis for your justification is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then we'll keep moving on here. Nevertheless, they are not actually justified personally, sorry, not actually, nevertheless, they are not justified personally 
until the Holy Spirit actually applies Christ to them at the proper time. And then let's look at Colossians 1. Who wants to take Colossians 1, 21 and 22? Who's got that? Maggie? And then Titus 3, 4 through 7. Who's got that? Don. Okay, go ahead, Maggie. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Okay. So what was our state before Christ did this for us, Maggie? How does it describe us? Alienated. Yep. Yeah. So what you're seeing here, you're not seeing a bunch of people searching desperately for God, hoping to find him. Nope. The Bible never, ever paints that picture. What's that? That's right. We were slaves to darkness, right? That's exactly right. And that, that picture, we, we really have to, I think, understand, and we've talked about it here, but I think because it's, it cuts against even the grain of what a lot of popular level Christianity teaches, we have to reckon with the fact that people are not looking for God. They're not. They hate God. From the moment sperm meets egg, by nature we are God-haters. So how do we understand people that seem to be looking for God but are not there yet? How do we understand that? What's happening with someone who seems to be searching? Yeah? Yep. And what will be the outcome of that? Salvation, right? So it, it could very well be that the hound of heaven is on their heels, right? And he will wrestle them to the ground. He will win, okay? The, the Holy Spirit can overcome our resistance, and he does. But what about the person who seems to be seeking for a season and then loses all interest and dies, as far as we can tell, in that uninterested, unsaved state? What's the nature of that kind of seeking? What's going on? Okay. Right. So they may find it through Christianity as well as through New Age philosophy as well as through whatever, right? They're just looking for a tool. And of course, in those conversations, can we tell whether they actually are? Whether Lisa's situation is happening, that the Holy Spirit is wrestling with them? Or whether they're just looking for a life hack? We can't really tell that. I don't think, most of the time at least. So if we don't know what ought to be our place in that process then. If you've, got a, if you've got a coworker who's asking questions, what's the right posture if you can't read his heart? Yeah. 
Right. And regardless of that, what are you doing in that situation? Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Pray as those conversations happen that their eyes will be opened, right? Because that, of course, that's what we want to see happen. And in many cases, it does. I think so, right? Because it says the one, it springs up quickly, and then as soon as there's testing, it falls away. But notice, what does it say about the nature of that quick sprouting up? It was of themselves, right? The root is not in them. That's not a real conversion, right? If somebody falls away for good, they were, at no point were they converted, right? They may have been you know, ginning themselves up, and my marriage seems to work better if I'm in church, so I'm going to, right, my marriage, you know, my kids seem to be more obedient if we're doing family devotions, but if that's it, there's no, the root is not there. Sean. What's apostasy? Okay, so if someone can't actually lose their justification... If I'm understanding this right, so, so we can't actually lose justification, so what's the nature of backsliding and apostasy? That's the question? Okay. How do, we under, how do we answer Sean's question? What's the nature of apostasy? True saints cannot lose their justification, and yet the Bible has lots of warnings about falling away in apostasy. Yeah, that's certainly one form. Absolutely. I, I would say the, the seed that quickly sprouts up and has no root in it, and then under testing, it shows its true nature. That is a form of apostasy, right? It, it fell away from its visible commitment. I think that's a good way to frame it. Yep. Yeah, I think most people hear backsliding or apostasy language, and what they're assuming is the Holy Spirit turned the lights of justification on, right? So they're actually on, and then through apostasy, they get turned off again. And we've discussed the nature of that in other ways, but that can't be the case because justification is an act of God, not an act of man, right? It, so if it was up to us, to get saved, or if it was up to us to maintain our salvation, 100% of us would fall out. We wouldn't come in the first place, and then even if we did, we would drop out the next day. Um, but we make it safely home, not because of us, but because of God's commitment to us. And so apostasy, in that sense, I think, I think you phrased it correctly. It's a revealing that the root of the matter is not in this person. It looked really good for a really long time, we saw them in church every Sunday for 13 years, and next thing you know, they're gone. They're gone. It, Carrie. Thomas Cranmer?
Okay. Carrie has asked about Thomas Cramner, which gets us into history. <laughs> Thomas Cramner was the Archbishop of the Church of England in the early days of the English Reformation. Uh, and his friends, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were famously martyred by burning at the stake. Are you going to recant your Protestant theology? And Latimer and Ridley said, no, we will not. They get tied together with a stake. The fire gets lit underneath them. And Latimer says, play the man, Ridley. We are this day going to light such a candle in England as will never go out. And we're still talking about them today. God lit an eternal candle in England <laughs> through the faithfulness of those men. And their friend, the Archbishop of Canterbury, head of the Anglican Church, Thomas Cramner's number was coming up next. And it did not look particularly pleasant the way his friends died by burning to death in public. And so under incredible duress, he did sign his name to a recantation. Okay? So the Archbishop of the Church of England has moved the Church of England from being Roman Catholic, essentially, to being Reformed. It's looking like that's going to be pretty tough to maintain. You know what? We can make some adjustments here and we can go back to Rome. I'm, I'm willing to work with that. And he signed that recantation. And his conscience did not quit wrestling with him. And then he recanted his recantation. Okay? Uh, they're bringing him to get burnt now anyway. And when it's his time to get burnt, he puts his hand in first and says, let this damned hand that signed that recantation be the first thing to go. Okay? That's true repentance. And I think, as far as I can tell, Thomas Cranmer died as a justified man, which means all the way through his struggle, all the way through his compromise, all the way through his wrestling, he was a Christian. Okay? Now God, in his providence, sees to it that his struggling saints don't die in a state of unrepentant sin. Because he's a true believer, he's fully restored by the end of his life. And I often use, as the most obvious of biblical examples, for that conversation, I always go to King David. After his sin, and Nathan confronts him, he repents and says against you, you only have I sinned, right, Lord? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. I think this would have been impossible, but let's say David died of a heart attack in, in bed with Bathsheba. He dies while he's doing it. He goes straight to heaven. He was a justified man while he was doing that. And that sounds hard to accept, but that's what the Bible teaches. <laughs> okay? Justified people sin. And God, in his kindness, will not leave them in that state of sin for good. They will be restored by the end. David was restored. So can Christians, true justified Christians, go through seasons of sin and of doubt and of struggle? Absolutely. And I think justified people can even go through seasons of besetting sin, like habitual sin. I think that's possible. But God, in his kindness, will see to it that that's not where we are when we die. 
right? If we are his saints, we will be right with him by the end. Marina. Justification cannot be turned on and off. If God turns on the lights, they're on. Correct. Their sins are forgiven. Yep. My sins are forgiven, including the ones I'm going to do tomorrow. That's right. That's right. Rob's brother talked about miserable Christians. Well, what's a miserable Christian is someone who knows better and persists in sin. They should struggle with their assurance because justified people should not be friends with sin. Right? So they should struggle. Their lives, hopefully, if God is kind to them, their lives will be difficult and miserable. Hopefully, they will be anxious and depressed because (laughs) God needs to get them to a better place. Right? So if we persist in sin, we should be miserable. But the fact of justification cannot change. If it could, that's putting salvation in man's hands. Right? And, and that can't be the case. Because we need to be forgiven for our sins. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So Inga's asking, why do we keep praying for forgiveness if they're all forgiven? And I would say... Um, I'm going to try to think of an analogy. Uh, you're married to the man sitting next to you, right? Okay, yeah? Okay, it's not just a show. Okay, <laughs> I wasn't there, but I'm assuming it actually happened. Okay, so you guys are married. So you made covenantal promises in front of witnesses to each other and before God. So are you going to be married tomorrow? Okay. Are you going to be married in 25 years? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, now, <laughs> you're not that old. Yeah. Okay. Now, you're married, and that's just a fact. Nothing can change that. A bad day's not going to change it. A bad year is not going to change it. You guys are married. Now, tell me how your marriage is going to go if you don't apologize to each other after you guys have bumps along the way, which I'm assuming you do. Most married people I know have bumps along the way. Okay. <laughs> you can always count on Rob to make sure it doesn't get too serious for too long. Yeah. I, I think ongoing repentance, even though justification is just a one-time punctiliar act, it just happens once in time. For us to be walking with the Lord, it's also a disposition of the heart. Repentance is part of our new nature, that we are soft, that we keep our accounts short, that we go to the Lord for forgiveness when we're walking in a way that's not fitting of how Christians ought to walk, right? Or if we have a run-in with someone in our family or another friend, we need to go to them as well and keep accounts short because that's the nature of a If you've been made new, if you are a Christian, if you are justified, part of that new identity is to be putting sin to death. And that includes daily repentance. That's an ongoing, it's who you are now. 
you're a slave to Christ. And that means when you're acting like a disobedient slave, you need to go and say, I'm sorry. This was not befitting of someone who's carrying your name out in public. So I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me. Give me an extra dose of your spirit that tomorrow's going to be better than today was. But that's part of, I'd say that's just part of the Christian walk. That's who we, that's who we are now. We're humble, soft people. We're not self-centered people. I'm not sure if I'm getting to the heart of what you're talking about or not. And if you're explaining it to a little kid and talking about adoption, which I think is something that doesn't get talked about nearly enough, if you would adopt someone from a foreign nation who grew up with different customs and their little four-year-old self is used to acting a certain way, a certain rhythm of life, and they come into your home and they take your name, they're now actually a minin, And nothing's going to change that. What will change is it's going to take a while to start acting like a minin. Right? Here's how we do things in our house. Here's the rhythm. Here's the pattern. And so their life is going to be a process of their behavior coming into conformity with what they actually are. That's the Christian life. Jesus Christ says, you are absolutely, perfectly righteous. You're adopted into my family. I don't see your sin anymore. It's gone as far as the east is from the west. The old ing is dead. I'm raising up a new Inga, but that new Inga still has some of the old Inga in her, right? And so your life, until you go to the other side of eternity, is getting more and more in line with the way God sees you. And that's, that's the whole argument of the book of Colossians. It's saying, you guys are new. Act new. <laughs> start acting like you are. God says this about you. Now start being what you are. That's the Christian life, and that's why we need to keep short accounts with God and with our neighbors, because we are new. Now start <laughs> believing it. Yeah, so Rob's describing it in terms of finding joy in your forgiveness. Joy in your salvation is keeping those accounts short. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and if I think for myself, another crude analogy, maybe some of you can remember this too. And I'll make an admission here that will shock most of you. I was sometimes a bit of a handful for my parents. I know. But you know that stage when you're an obnoxious boy 
from about age one till you die. Then <laughs> and you can just feel the pressure building and building and building, and dad's getting more and more frustrated, and finally these storm clouds are going to release a spanking, and it feels so good after it's done, right? Because you just know this is headed for a spanking. And seven-year-old you just, for whatever bizarre reason, refuses to stop short of it getting there. I don't know what that is. And I feel bad for moms that have to try to figure that out. To a boy, somehow that makes total sense to just keep pushing it. But after that spanking happens, it just feels like the water's, like the air, the thick air is just released from the house. Right? Because there's restoration again. Now, was I my dad's son before the spanking? Yep. Was I his son during? Yep. And my son later? Yep. Okay? But that softness, that repentance that comes through it hurting, and that's what a spanking is, teaching children that sin hurts, the peace that comes with that is freeing. And I'd say repentance is freeing for the Christian to acknowledge I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Right? Uh, and that should necessarily produce a soft heart in us, not a self-sufficient heart. Lisa, you had your hand up. Yep, amen. So Lisa's just pointing out another important truth here that God can turn even that for good. Right? Thanks, thanks to adultery and murder, you've got the 53rd Psalm in your Bible. That's how God tells stories. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. Ruth. That's right. So what Ruth is saying is repentance honors God because it, it's recognizing God's law is not moving according to how you feel that day. Right? God's law is fixed and holy. And if you're not conforming, you're the problem. Right? And so you're honoring the, the goodness of God's law by repenting. Yep. No, that, that is so true. Jeremy and then Howard, uh, Jeremy, Gideon, Howard. Yeah, so with that picture, you could almost see it like a Venn diagram, 
right? The old man and the new man, you know those Venn diagrams with overlapping circles, right? The Christian life is for those circles to get more and more mapped right on top of each other, that the actual you and the forensic you in God's courtroom is more and more the same. Gideon. Yeah, amen. So Gideon's making application to prayer generally, right? You won't surprise God with your requests. But we do it anyway because it puts you in the right posture, right? That's what you're saying? Yeah. And I'm sorry to repeat if people are hearing. I know some people don't hear. And also we have people in, amazingly, all over the world, in Denmark and Mexico, that have asked me to repeat the questions. (laughs) So, Denmark, if you're listening, we're... (laughs) repeating the questions for you. (laughs) Howard. That's right. So Howard's just saying we do it also even if we don't, even if nothing changes, in God's standpoint, or we don't maybe even understand it, we do it because you get your marching orders from God. <laughs> right? Then, yep. We do them, yep. Because now you're a soldier in God's, God's army and you know to take orders from your commander. Right? Yep, very true. Okay, it's 1020, so we will close it off here and pick this up next time. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you for this body of believers. I want to thank you for the testimonies that we're able to hear and the way that you have been working in people's lives and moving the pieces even for this church body to take shape and to grow together. Lord, I want to thank you for the glorious truths of your gospel. Lord, I want to thank you that scripture reminds us over and over again that salvation is from you, that it is a gracious gift that the Christian life is not about us pedaling harder and running faster, Lord, but about coming into alignment with your purposes for our lives. And I pray for each one here, Lord, whether they are in a season of sin or of difficulty or even a season of besetting sin, um, or those who do not net know you in a saving way at all, Lord, I pray that your spirit would work, would bring us to repentance, whether that means to be justified at the beginning of our Christian walk or whether that is the ongoing house cleaning uh, that needs to happen for us to have peace with you. Lord, I pray for soft hearts for each one here. I pray that we would not go on our own strength. I pray that we would not feel self-sufficient. I pray that we would not be too proud to die to ourselves, but rather that we would die daily to ourselves. Lord, and then teach us that dying daily will make us better children, it will make us better friends, it will make us better church members, it will make us a better wife and a better husband, and most importantly, a better citizen in your kingdom. So Lord, give us all the humility to die to ourselves, and to even die daily to ourselves, that we would walk 
in the peace and the assurance that comes from walking with you, from daily repentance, from keeping our accounts short. Lord, and I pray that your spirit would work mightily in this church, that we would keep short accounts, and that we would be known by those who know us as people who walk in joy, people who are freed by the gospel of grace, and people whose joy becomes contagious to others. Thank you, Lord, and we trust the rest of this morning into your kind hands. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, and amen.